Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Another Bottle Down, and my name is Mark Rayshap. We talk about wine and the wine industry every week. Uh, it's a podcast, and it starts out as a radio show uh, that broadcasts on the air, 91.7 FM, co-op radio in Austin, Texas. And then we uh, send out this podcast worldwide. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast in the iTunes Store, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, so you get the updates that uh, we've posted new content and all that good stuff. And uh, make sure to like us on social media, Facebook, Another Bottle Down Radio, and Instagram, uh, illuminated underscore bottle. And uh, that way you get to see photos of my guests and all the, the cool stuff going on in the studio. Uh, on today's show, we've got a great conversation with a local sommelier, Tony Schlotzauer. He has worked for the past couple of years at Aust- one of Austin's top restaurants, Jeffrey's. And uh, now he's actually transitioning to the distributor world. But he, uh, he just recently spent uh, a month in Australia in the state of Victoria and, and the Mornington Peninsula, actually, to be more specific, doing harvest there. And, and down, down under, they call it uh, doing vintage. And so he has great stories to tell us, a lot that he learned, uh, how he as a sommelier interpreted uh, all of the ongoings during harvest. Uh, so I think that you're going to really appreciate this conversation. Uh, and of course, in the Southern Hemisphere, they harvest in March. So he's, uh, he's uh, freshly returned from there. And, uh, and I learned a whole lot about the Mornington Peninsula. Um, a quick note, if you're not familiar with this region, I definitely recommend checking out uh, the, the website for the Mornington Peninsula uh, Vignerones, uh, and that is uh, mpva.com.au, and there's a lot of great information on that website. And then check out the website for uh, the, the winery that Tony worked at, which is 10 Minutes by Tractor, and that's the, the website there is 10minutesbytractor.com.au. Uh, really, really wonderful website. A lot of great information that they have there. So um, without further ado, this is Tony Schlotzauer talking about the Mornington Peninsula, Australian wine, and what it was like to work harvest down under. Give us a, a broad overview of what goes on. You traveled to Australia, to Victoria, to outside of Melbourne, particularly for uh, the harvest of the grapes. Can you kind of explain broad brushstrokes what goes on this time of year? Sure, sure. Obviously, um, going to the Southern Hemisphere, it's a different, it's a different experience uh, going down that far. Uh, we're doing vintage around March, uh, so... Depending on how much, uh, how, many, how many grapes come out, how much tonnage, uh, you're really working hard. You're yeah. really working hard. That was the big takeout for me was uh, how much work it actually is. Um, I've done a little bit of, of actual harvest where I got to pick grapes here in Texas with Pedernalis Cellars. Oh, wonderful. Which was a really cool experience, but this was completely different working in the winery for a full month. Yeah, so, so. You, so you were just in the winery. So you were basically seeing that grapes were, were being harvested and they were coming in. And did that? Ha- it doesn't all happen at once, right? It happens over the course of many weeks. W- w- why is that? And, and paint us the picture of that. Well, I mean, that's all up to the vineyard manager and the chief winemaker, how, how they want to do things, how long they want to let things hang, um, bricks levels, things like that. Um, they do uh, Bome there, uh, which is similar to our bricks here. Um, Can we which, dig into that a little bit more? Uh, because harvest is a magic time where the grapes are ripening, right? And sugar is building and, and the Bome or the bricks is how they measure that sugar, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, and obviously that's how your winemaking style, how long you want to let that hang. Obviously letting them hang longer gives them a lot, a lot of time to get more sun. So then they get uh, a little bit more ripe, a lot more sugar. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that can lead to higher alcohol, depending on how much you want to ferment. Um, this particular place likes to ferment to complete dryness. So, um, that can lead to higher alcohol and they want to kind of temper that, um, yeah. cool weather, obviously a good diurnal shift, which is the difference between, uh, the daytime temperature and the nighttime temperature. Those nighttime, that nighttime coolness gives acid, 
right. uh, which gives it that structure. So you definitely want to have that uh, balance to give it uh, age worthiness. So. Yeah, and that, that's the whole concept of balance, right? So as the grapes are, are ripening, if you have high alcohol without acidity, you have a wine that's just not in balance. And, yeah, and, and, and they call and, it flabby a lot of the time. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I love that wine word because mm. because it's kind of a, a nice way to be pretty critical. Um, all right, well, let's. So where in uh, Australia were you particularly, and and what grapes are, is this region? famous for? Well, I was in um, Mornington Peninsula to be exact, which is kind of the sub region. So they're broken up into uh, much differently than we are here in the United States or even France. Uh, They have five states uh, or actually six states. I apologize. Um, There's five that actually make wine. Uh, So there's actually seven total. Um, but there's five that make wine, and they're all kind of on the southern, the southern area of Australia. So those are the states. Then you have zones within that, and then you have regions and subregions inside that. So Mornington Peninsula was the subregion that I was in. Okay, so Mornington Peninsula is, is the subregion. Can we run through the states and then maybe where this is in the entire context of wine? I like to, I like to give this broad overview and then we'll hone in uh, more specifically. So, um, so, so you mentioned that there are uh, not every state in Australia is wine producing, right? Correct. correct. Maybe, maybe let's uh, roll from west to east. West to east. Okay, so obviously you have Western Australia, which is the name of the state. It's not just a, a, ge- a geographic reference, right? Correct. It's funny how they're kind of broken up. It's, it's these massive areas in Australia. Um, Western Australia is where you have Margaret River, uh, which is kind of famous for Chardonnays and some really amazing Cabernets and, and stuff like that. Right. So, the, so that's kind of the, the, the region. If you were to know one uh, Western Australia region, it would be Margaret River, maybe. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Obviously, that, that's up to opinion. But Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> Uh, then you have, if you go uh, east from there, you get into South Australia. Okay. Uh, and, and keep in mind, these are going across the bottom of Australia. Right. So, um, so you have South Australia, which has Adelaide is the big city there, and Adelaide Hills, and the Barossa is kind of the big one, and Coonawarra is over there too. Yeah. And, and I had just uh, gotten back from a trip uh, focusing only on those South Australian wines. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we had on the show Paul Osborne, uh, and, we, and we did a deep dive into South Australia. So if you're really interested in, in uh, Australian wine, uh, check out the, the co-op archive uh, for this show. So, so you've got Barossa in South Australia, and that's really anchored around Adelaide, right? Correct. And one of the cool things is that if you go to South Australia, I'm going to give a little South Australia spot right here. Sure. <laughs> if you go to South Australia, one of the really notable things is that they uh, really don't have a lot of diseases or pests that other regions have. So they actually uh, offer to, to clean your shoes. If you, if you have dirt on your boots, it's a, it's a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, really, get landing um, in the airport. They're like, if you have any dirt on your boots, uh, we got to take a look at it, <laughs> and, and they'll clean them for you. I love that, man. Yeah, I love I know. that. So, um, so that's kind of a so the, uh, South Australia, Barossa. Um, you have the Adelaide Hills and McLaren Vale, mm-hmm. um, and then a little bit further south, Coonawarra, as we're getting towards the state of Victoria, right? And that's really where you were focusing on, right? What's notice- notable about Victoria? Uh, I think the coolest thing about Victoria and uh, Port Phillip in, in particular, I think, is it's, it's kind of a, a Mediterranean climate, climate uh, similar to Bordeaux, Um where I was in particular, they like to plant a lot of Burgundian varietals, which is kind of an interesting uh, difference. Yeah, well, I, I think that that's a big thing to to sit on for a second because uh, when you say Burgundian varietals, you're meaning Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and and those varietals cannot grow in a super warm climate which is uh, counterintuitive. A lot of people think of Australia as being hot, right? Exactly, exactly. And that's, I think that's a big difference with Victoria. You have uh, kind of the, one of the cooler, but, I mean, minus Tasmania, it's the coolest wine-growing region, yeah. in, in, uh, or zone at least, in uh, Australia. So you definitely, I think people think of like big blousy kind of um, Shiraz and Cabernets and stuff like that coming right. from uh, Australia. But I think there's a lot of people kind of going in the direction of restraint now, which is great and balance and just yeah. really kind of going that 
kind of the European style. So yeah, and and that uh, I think that that's the that's the main key. But you can't do that if you don't have the climate to uh, go that direction, right? Um, exactly. And so, what was the influence of the ocean? Whenever we talk about Australia, and uh, you know, in the southern part of Australia, you talk about these cool breezes coming from the ocean, and that really allows the grapes that grow there to grow there, right? Did you notice this? Did, does that strike you or is that just something you read in books? Um, I think, I think, you know, I think I kind of did some, some research going in. So, uh, I, I don't think I was too caught off guard by it, but I, you know, if, if you have preconceived notions of Australia, then it definitely catches you off guard. Uh, getting that, uh, influence of the ocean from the Bass Strait is it's pretty amazing. I guess that's why the climate, I think, resembles Bordeaux more, because obviously with continental climates like Burgundy, when you're inland, you're going to get more swings in temperature and just big, big temperature differences where I think the ocean kind of tempers that a little bit. Uh, so I, I think the reason why they do so much like Burgundy is because their kind of their climate matched with their soil type kind of kind of allows them to do that right right so so this is within um within victoria the state and then around uh the mornington peninsula is basically southeast of melbourne right which a lot of people i'm sure of know the city of melbourne we'll talk about melbourne later in the show uh what a glorious city um what else do we find in in victoria well, look, so there's basically six main uh, zones within the Victoria State. Uh, again, Port Phillip is where kind of everything is uh, gathered around Melbourne. Uh, Melbourne. Melbourne, yeah. You're supposed yeah. to say that, right. Otherwise, right. they're going to laugh at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you got Yarra Valley, which is really famous for its Shiraz and stuff like that. Uh, some great wines there. And then just south of that, you have, which is a little bit warmer than Mornington Peninsula, you have, you know, Ruther Glen, uh, Sunland, uh, some, some great wine growing regions within the Port Phillip. Uh, then you have, you have Western Victoria, which is another one, uh, Northwest, uh, Central, Northeast, and then you have uh, Gippsland, yeah. uh, which is kind of a bigger area on that west, on that east, east side yeah. of uh, Victoria. But also a place of big experimentation too, right? Absolutely. Was that... Um, was that a notice, a, a notable thing for you, this drive to, to experiment with different varieties and to, to do unique things? Did you, did you notice that as well? I did. I did. And I love that. I think people are really trying to move Australian wine forward there. And I love that about it. We had a guy that, uh, uh Barney Flanders from a, a winery called Garagiste that was working with us in the same, uh, uh, facility. Right. And he was doing, um, a hundred percent, uh, uh, you know, uh, carbonic, uh, whites, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, stuff like that, which was really, really cool. And, you know, you're taking a big chance wow. with that kind of stuff. Wow. So. Yeah. That's a pretty, um, unique process to make wine, uh, and, and it often not really done with white wine. So that, that is experimentation, right? Yeah. That is really cool <laughs> stuff. I mean, they got stuff over there. Like I had some ugly Anico, uh, I had some, uh, some petite Mansang. I had some really crazy stuff, a lot of Riesling out there too. So some really cool stuff they're doing. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about some of those other varieties in a little bit more depth, but I want to finish our our um, our overview of Australia. So so um, we've been going west from Western mm -hmm. Australia, South Australia, and then Victoria, and then we have uh, New South Wales is the state where Sydney is found. What, what's kind of notable there? Uh, you know, the one that's notable to me a lot of the time is that Hunter Valley, right. uh, Hunter Valley Riesling was that, which is actually, that kind of confuses people cause that's actually semi-owned. Uh, but there's some really good stuff there. Right. And then of course I, we didn't go completely South to Tasmania, right. which is, uh, but yeah. So. And, and Tasmania is a state that's owned by Australia. Um, mm. sometimes people, I think, think of it lumped in with New Zealand, but, but that, that is a big no, no mistake to uh, lump it in with New Zealand. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I worked with a, with a winemaker at 10 minutes by tractor that was actually from, uh, Tasmania. And he, you know, he, he talked lovingly about it, how, you know, there's, there's this rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne. And, uh, but kind of Hobart's there, this beautiful little, uh, city in Tasmania. And they just kind of like, are they're like, 
come over here instead. You know, right. you don't have to deal with all this uh, rivalry stuff. So that's pretty cool. And those, those, you know, that's really interesting. A lot of people I don't think have even heard of Semyon um, and, and from Australia. And Hunter Valley really is uh, is is a very noticeable place. The the that that white wine is very age worthy. Uh, actually, on this show, I, I've had on. Um, I've had on the folks. I've had on some guests from uh, from from the Hunter Valley, and it, it's just wonderful to highlight those wines as well. Um, and then, but it's odd because there you're getting a little bit north, but in the southern hemisphere, that's warmer. So the way that they mitigate that is kind of a little higher elevation, uh, and that's how the, the the temperatures are a little cooler. Um, we're gonna we're 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 having fun. I'm having fun, Tony. We're we're talking with Tony Schlotzauer, who uh, is a sommelier and. Austin. He has worked at Jeffries. He is now trans uh, transitioning to work for Republic National and uh, just spent a full month working harvest, or they call it their vintage, uh, in the Mornington Peninsula. Let's delve a little bit uh, deeper into the Mornington Peninsula, and in particular, I want you to paint the picture of what you did while you were there and kind of the craziness. So, you know, we, we were talking about the grapes being harvested depending on their balance, right? And then you were in the winery and, and saw the grapes coming in. What happens then? Uh, I mean, depending on obviously what, uh, what so we had two different facilities um, currently. Uh, there's a transition going on within the winery where uh, they're building a brand new winery uh, so they're going to have everything in one place. But for now, we worked with two different uh, facilities, one for our whites and one for our reds. Uh, so we would see them come in with whites. They would come in in the bin, full cluster, and we just throw them straight into the, uh, into the press, which we had a massive bladder press that would run for about two and a half hours. So when they would come in, uh, you know, obviously, you know, there's a lot of uh, preparation Right. before things even can get processed. Can, can, I want to delve into that a little bit because I, I think a lot of folks have this really traditional concept of winemaking, but there's a lot of cleaning that goes in oh, beforehand. Man, it's, it's Describe hilarious. that. I, I, I love this because, you know, they'll tell you when you're learning, they say uh, 90% cleaning, 10% drinking beer. That's winemaking. <laughs> Uh, so they, they, you gotta love those, especially the Aussies. The Aussies, they just, they, I, you know, they're very serious about their winemaking, but they're very... They're very jovial people. It's hilarious. Right. Uh, so a lot of fun there with that. But, uh, you know, working vintage is just such an amount of work. It's crazy. You come in, you know, you know, 630 in the morning, uh, something around there, and you just start pre preparing for things. The chief winemaker comes in, kind of gives you the lay of the land, where all the grapes are at, what's coming in, what we're going to have to do with them, and you kind of go on with your day from there. Yeah. So, uh, so, again, with the whites, uh, Chardonnays, Pinot Gris, that kind of thing. Dump them straight into the into the bladder press. Let that thing go for about two and a half hours. You're kind of keeping an eye on how much. And these bladder presses are kind of cool. They start off uh, just kind of pressing the grapes real lightly because you want that freshness uh, with from the grapes, but you don't want too much uh, from the skins and from the um, stems and, and seeds and stuff like that. It gives it a real bitterness a lot of the time. Right, that picks up a little phenolics and, and, and that bitterness. And, and so would you, so you would see the press go and, and inflate from the inside, the mm -hmm. bladder press, and then you would start to have juice. Were you tasting this uh, or, or would it be gauged uh, by a certain amount of pressure that was, that was in the press? And uh, how cool was that to see? I mean, just, you know, this, this wine, this juice, um, not wine yet, uh, pouring out of the press. It was super cool. I mean, these massive bladder presses, you're not seeing from the inside, unfortunately, but right. you kind of realize how it works and you're kind of, you can hear it going, uh, but it's pressing the juice out and you're seeing this amazing juice coming out. Uh, and you're, you know, you're kind of pumping it into, so the whites we pump straight in a barrel and they would ferment in barrel. So, you know, you, and that was for all of the varieties that they made at 10 minutes by tractor. That was for the whites would for go straight whites. into barrel. Correct. Um, and that's where they would ferment. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, you, you would see that, you would see that going and you'd kind of fill up the barrels, move the pump to the next barrel, fill it up, uh, you know, throwing a tiny bit of sulfur to, to not to kind of control the fermentation process. So it's not going too fast. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
Yeah, that's what, what, what whites were. So uh, mention again the the whites that you saw uh, on on that day to day basis. And did anything or, or did, was anything notable noticeable? Like the Pinot Gris was very aromatic, or Riesling very aromatic. Did anything strike you? Oh, I, oh, I thought the Chardonnay was really really aromatic. I mean, I always, you know, as a psalm, you kind of learn. Obviously, people I think think of Chardonnay as this like massive oaky butter bomb because you know a lot of people drink uh uh you know a lot of these big kind of you know blousies we said before right. chardonnays uh over oak see that kind of thing sometimes uh with a lot of uh, a lot of mallow which is you know what obviously people know from listening to your show probably that uh it's uh, kind of that butteriness where it gets that lactic acid which is in in the milk and butter and right thing, right so. So, so that's actually that buttery quality when you hear folks saying buttery chardonnay that's actually coming from a process and not actually the grapes Correct. how did they feel about that down there um i think the cool thing about where i was working is they really are focused on restraint and making it uh so they are really focused on making a sense of place. And I think that's the big difference. And I, you know, as Psalms, we hear this a lot, I'm sure, and you get further into your Psalm career about the difference between new world and old world. And, you know, the new world is kind of known for like these big oaky kind of high alcohol uh, uh, wines. Um, but I think they're really focused on making a sense of place. And that's the cool thing about old world wine to me as a sommelier is really be able to like a wine to be able to tell a story of a place and a time. Yeah. So I think in the new world, a lot of the time they're focused on consistency of wine where people are, just, you know, they, they want the, the person to, if they buy a wine, you know, two years ago, they want it to taste the same as the right. And, and more so. brand oriented. Exactly. So, exactly. so you know what you're going to get from a particular brand. Whereas in the old world and, and where you were in Australia was, is more so what is the land going to give us this year? And if it's different, great. Right. A absolutely. And that's, that's the beauty of, you know, of wine to me is, you know, especially like I'm, I'm a, I love Burgundy and like, you know, every one of those wines, uh, not every one of those wines, but almost all those wines are really focused on telling a story of a place and a time. Yeah. yeah. I Especially love when you get like into those single vineyards and those ludies and stuff like that. So. Right. I, and I love that. And, and, you know, that is something that I think all wine lovers are folks who are really immersed in the industry. They're in love with this idea of storytelling via the earth and the year and the weather and, uh, and and there's not necessarily bad things it's just different and and different and variety is an amazing thing right Absolutely. i mean when wine tastes the same then then why do we do what we do right <laughs> exactly exactly and and that's that's the cool thing i mean there's so many cool stories when it comes to wine uh, like, you know, there's been vintages where they had frost, you know, recently Burgundy and, uh, Beaujolais got hit hard with frost in the past couple of years. So that's part of the story. Right. Um, you know, world war, you know, the wars, you know, world war one was a huge thing. Phylloxera. I mean, you got these places, you know, I mean, Australia was, that's a huge part of their history, yeah. just like France about like how it started right. was, you know, because of phylloxera. So, right. Um, I love the, I think we could talk on the poetic side for, for hours and hours. Um, but, but, uh, I guess I will say one of my favorite things is, um, you know, that you can kind of, uh, uh, realize and, and perceive some, uh, some trends in history and some things that were going on. There were world wars, there was riots in champagne and all of that affected the wine. And then when you taste that wine, it, uh, it can open you up to that history. Um, <laughs> let's get back into, into vintage okay. and, and your experiences. What, so for the white wines, um, we went right to barrel and, and they fermented in barrel. What was that like? I mean, I saw some of the pictures of yours where the barrels were overflowing and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's always, uh, there was, again, that, that goes back to cleaning, you know, right. a lot of, a lot of time spent on the floor of the, uh, of the winery cleaning cleaning up uh, uh, overflowing barrels that are just going over because of, of fermentation. You know, those things bubble over. They right. create so much pressure and stuff like that. So uh, it definitely was a lot of, uh, a lot of that. 
Yeah, just just trying to to keep. And then, would you uh, be monitoring the, the how the fermentation was progressing? So the way that you monitor fermentation, uh, for I'm I'm sure that there are a lot of home brewers out there, and there are a lot of folks who maybe have seen wine being made or fermentation from their seventh grade biology class. But but you monitor the sugar as that diminishes the yeast or eating the sugar. Would would you be the one to be taking the specific gravity and seeing all of that? Absolutely. There's a kind of a two-part to that. Um, I did a lot of cap management, uh, which is basically the cap is all the uh, skins and things that were on top of the wine. So when you put the red wines into concrete, stuff like that, and even with the white wines, I mean, you're constantly measuring Bome, which is, uh, which is similar to the bricks level, which is going to be, and the temperature too, because during um, fermentation, one of the, uh, one of the things that's created is heat. Right. Uh, so you know that, uh, it's still going if it's still pretty hot. So you, the, the heat rises up when it's, you know, in the midst of fermentation and as it kind of slowly goes down, then you're kind of, you know, fermentation's kind of dying off a little bit. Uh, so if you're not, uh, completely dry, by that point, you got to, you know, there's things you have to do to kind of keep fermentation going and make sure you're getting to complete dryness unless you want residual sugar in your wine. Right. And and that is a huge problem. So residual wines that are not totally dry for stability purposes, there's a huge problem. So you were recording that. Did everything go in this big, massive uh, ledger or notebook? Uh, it did. It yeah. did. And we had all kinds of different uh, fermentation vessels, you know, um, with, with whites, it was all in barrel. Right. Uh, so that was a little bit different. Some Sometimes they went into stainless. We would take them from sometimes from uh, from barrel into a big stainless tank. Uh, and with the reds, uh, we had a bunch of, of concrete fermenters, which were these massive 7.7 ton, uh, or sorry, like I think they were like maybe closer to five ton uh, concretes. Uh, and uh, we would we would kind of measure those. We would do a pump over, or if the, it's, it's early in the fermentation. Describe what a pump over is. So you're taking basically you're taking a wine from the bottom of of a tank from a fermenting tank, and you're pump, using a pump and putting it over the top of the caps. So you're keeping the cap wet. Basically, right. that's what you want. Uh, if you don't do that, they dry out and they get these funky flavors. That's where you get off off uh, aromas and right. things start going wrong if you don't keep that cap wet. Yeah, and, and that's where all of the flavor comes from. So the flavor and the color all comes from the skins. And when they float to the top and they're no longer kind of touching the wine and drying out like what you say, then you're not getting of the, any of the good flavor into the wine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, What's uh, we we need to take a short break here in a second, but uh, I do want to I kind of want to finish off the conversation of whites, and then we'll talk more more in in depth on the reds. Uh, so after so you you're monitoring their fermentation in the barrel, and not not all wineries do this. This was the particular winery that you were at, Ten Minutes by Tractor, doing all of their whites in barrel. Uh, did you when when you saw things kind of slowing down? Did the get barrels get moved to a different part of the winery so then it would would just kind of start its aging process or what happened there? That's exactly what happened. They, we would move them into a different part of the winery where they would age. Uh, we had a different you know we had a couple different areas that we would put them in. Uh, finding space is a big is always a big challenge in a winery. Again, <laughs> right. next year they're going to have their own winery with a massive space to kind of age, uh, which is great. You know you see a lot of wineries have these. Uh, caves temperature because that's a good way to control temperature put them in these caves and kind of they age the best that way so if the if the uh, constant the constant temperature. temperature at a certain point so yeah yeah um and then and what were some of your so as you're tasting this you're tasting this young wine right is it is it a totally different experience uh at this point it's been fermented and it's and it's technically young wine right is it, what what's the experience of tasting that as opposed to the wine that you know we know it, that comes out of the bottle um, I mean, I guess it depends on where you're at, like how much new French oak you're using or depending on whether you're using French oak or American oak, uh, things like that make a big difference in the flavor of the wine, how high the toast level is, uh, things like that, how they prepare their barrels, where they get their barrels from, um, yeast, you know, cause like, we used all indigenous yeasts, right. uh, we didn't add an inoculate, which is adding, uh, other yeasts. Uh, so, I mean, all that stuff has, it has a, 
has an effect on it. So at that young stage, you could almost taste all of the components separately in a little bit of a magnified form instead of it being a harmonized whole. Is that, is that kind of exactly, right? exactly. That aging process really kind of, um, integrates all those, the tannins and the alcohols and the acids and stuff like that. Again, that's why we were calling it age worthy, uh, cause it has a good balance and it can age a lot longer be- and, and slowly those things kind of come together as they age. Yeah. We're, we're going to take a short break here. We're talking with Tony Schlotzauer, a sommelier here in Austin. And we're talking about him working harvest in the Mornington Peninsula at 10 minutes by tractor, all of his experiences and what he's learned and how it's made him a better wine professional. So, uh, Tony, this is this is one of my favorite Australian bands, King Tough uh, from from the 70s. And so we're going to take a short break, folks. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Mark Rayshap. This is Another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio, 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. And we're back. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Co-op Radio, 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. This is Another Bottle Down. We talk about wine and the wine industry and meet the wonderful wine personalities in our Austin community and abroad. I like to have folks on who have something unique to say about the world of wine, how they interpret the world of wine, and uh, and, and it's all about pure enjoyment. Uh, that's why we do this. I hope that uh, you take some of these stories and, uh, and, and apply them to other facets of life, because uh, that's what... That's what it's all about, how, how we can make our life more enjoyable and more fulfilled. And um, so, so thank you for being there with us. Today we're talking with Tony Schlotzauer, who is an Austin sommelier. He has worked for a couple of years at Jeffries and just spent about a month down in Australia in the state of Victoria in the, the subregion of the Mornington Peninsula, which is just south of Melbourne. Um, Tony, th- this is, it's so great to have you share your experiences with the Austin community and, and, and then, uh, with folks also listening to the podcast or, uh, Radio Free America, all of the ways that folks can listen to co-op radio. So, uh, I thank you for being here. Um, we, we spent some time talking about the white wines and we've alluded a little bit to some of the reds. Um, what, what are the red wines that, that the Mornington Peninsula is famous for? Uh, so, uh, in particular, Mornington Peninsula is probably more famous for their Pinot Noir. Right. Um, there is a bit of Shiraz also that, and a lot of people call it Syrah still, uh, cause they like that kind of more strain style, but mostly Pinot Noir. They do. So there. if you're there, they, they might call it Syrah there because of a stylistic decision. Exactly. Really? Exactly. Can you, can you elaborate on that? So you, you said more restrained. So, so they're, they're almost rebelling against uh, the current style. Is that, that what's going on? Yeah, you know, a lot of the time, you know, as we know, you go to a grocery store, if you go to a wine bar or a wine shop, you're looking at, you're looking at labels and you're not knowing the difference between the wines. You might see a region or something like that. So if you see Australian uh, Shiraz, you don't know the difference between one from the other unless you buy it. So um, I think that's their way of kind of saying, Hey, this is, this is a different style. They're definitely uh, more influenced by the Northern Rhone Syrahs of, uh, of, of France. So they, they like to have that kind of influence and they want people to know before they buy it. This is, this is not a big giant Shiraz that's gonna, you know, how do you think about that? Do you, do you, do you like that uh, clarity for the consumer or is that kind of issuing their, the, their traditional way that they call Shiraz? Um, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't really know. You know, I mean, I, I feel it's, I feel it's great. You know, it helps me, uh, you know, know if I, if I get something at a restaurant, yeah. uh, as a sommelier, I'll know the difference if I haven't tasted it. Um, so um, I think, and I think it helps consumers. It yeah. really does. I mean, there's a lot of things that confuse consumers, things like yeah. Chablis. I mean, I had people coming in still asking for, you know, saying that they didn't like, 
uh, Chablis because it came in that box, like that, you know, the 80s <laughs> right, stuff. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, anything that can help the consumer helps the sommelier as well. You know, we want, we all want people to learn. So I think that's a very helpful tool. Yeah. Yeah. And in the new world, we should say the new world where, uh, meaning the United States, Australia, South Africa, uh, Chile, Argentina, they, they have several ways that they can call a, a particular grape. Whereas if you were in Italy, you would never call, uh, your wine, if you were making Pinot Grigio, you would never call it Pinot Gris, even though they're the same grape. But in the new world, you can choose, right? So we see the same sort of thing with Pinot Grigio and Pinot Gris. Uh, they, they make Pinot Gris down there, but they call it Pinot Gris, right? Correct, correct. Because right? <laughs> they, they want more so the consumers to think about it in the same vein as Alsace instead of the northern Italian stuff. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have Pinot Noir. We have, what were your impressions? I mean, you knew some of the Pinot Noir and Shiraz when, when you were here. Uh, when you got there, did the wines more so impress you? Did they, uh, how did you, do, how did you uh, interpret them? Absolutely. And, and that, you know, I, I, you know, tasting the wines from uh, 10 Minutes by Tractor with a little different experience, uh, they are very, very, very influenced by Burgundy. Uh, so they were, had a very restrained style, uh, you know, you know, comparatively maybe to, uh, to Chablis, you yeah. know, like a, like a Ravino style or a Dovasa, stuff like that. They really are influenced by them. Uh, the, the wine, the wine, uh, owner, the winery owner, uh, Martin Spedding is a big fan of Ramonet. I mean, he drank that with, with me at Jeffrey's and that's how I met him. Uh, so we know that he's really influenced by these. So that's the direction he's going with his wine where I think a lot of people, uh, aren't, aren't so focused on going that direction. Right. So. so that's how you met, uh, that's how you ended up there as you met in at Jeffrey's, the owner of 10 minutes by tractor. Correct. Correct. Him and his wife came in, uh, and, at new years, two years ago. And, uh, we were talking for a while, you know, I mean, uh, usually on a busy night like that, you don't get too much time to spend, uh, talking to people, but it was just an amazing conversation. I think they, I was impressed with them. They were impressed with me. So they asked me to come out and, and do vintage with them. And, um, you know, you get that kind of stuff every once in a while, but, and you usually don't take people up on it. And I think they were, I, I got that story a lot when I was out there, how they never thought I was going to take them up on it. And so right. uh, I did. And I think they were really surprised and, and really impressed. And what, what, what motivated you? I mean, did, did you want, you know, you've worked in restaurants for so many years. Did you want a new chapter to your career? Was this something that maybe eventually you will go into winemaking or what was it? I mean, that, that could be something for some people. I think uh, as a sommelier, I think if you want to be serious in, in, in the industry as a sommelier, I think that's kind of a rite of passage going and doing vintage with somebody. I don't think you necessarily have to do a full month. Uh, that was a lot of work. I think I have a lot of bumps and scrapes and bruises and, you know, muscle cramps that I, I st I'm still working on uh, that, uh, that really, I mean, but I, I really, I took it seriously. I wanted to impress them and I wanted to show them that I was there to help and, and, and to be a part of the team. I think they didn't hire an extra winemaker because I was coming out. So uh, it really, I, I wanted to earn my keep there. So, yeah. Um, yeah. What, um, what did you how how are you how do you look at wine differently now uh, and this is something that i always uh, I always like to highlight with people that we have these experiences. Our, the way that we look at anything in the world is informed by our past experiences. And, uh, and, and no two people look at wine. They might smell the same wine, but they are informed by an entirely different set of experiences, tastes, uh, um, experiences of how they, they might uh, enjoy wine or think about it. How, how did this change you forever? I think, you know, uh, a lot of, a lot of sommeliers know a lot about the processes. Um, but once you've seen it through studying, through studying, you know, yeah. I mean, and, and you, I guess, you know, when you drink a wine, you drink it and you kind of take it in as a whole, as one whole product. Uh, but when you've made it, I think you kind of start dissecting how, how the different, um, parts of it have come together. Right. So you really appreciate, like, you think about like, Oh, how, you know, what did they do with this? How do they make this so fresh? How do they make this? Uh, so, you know, if it's dry, if it's, uh, if it's, you know, you start learning about the influences and how different winemakers are influenced and, um, kind of the processes and how they affect the wines. You kind of start dissecting it when you're tasting it. So you'll see a sommelier drinking, and I'm sure a lot of people think that we're uh, kind of snobby for, you know, dissecting these, these parts of the wine. But, I mean, you really start appreciating it and how 
Like you learn how each different thing, I think people think that, you know, is there vanilla in this wine? Is, is this fruit in this wine? But it's all like kind of a chemical reaction within the wine that creates these different flavors and aromas. Uh, so it's, it's pretty cool how learn how they come together. Right. So, so that, that, and I don't want to say snobbery, but maybe the public perception of, you know, a sommelier pulling aromas and flavors out of thin air. It's not like that, right? I mean, it's, it's almost, I'm trying to identify something that might lead me back to something that happened in the winery. And that's kind of what you, you know, you were talking about the different vessels to ferment in. And uh, when you were there, you could probably get to know a little bit, okay, this vessel tastes a little bit different than this other vessel. And then, you know, that uh, you can take on through the rest of the life of the wine, right? Absolutely. And and things like uh, whether there was whole cluster involved, whether there was carbonic maceration, any any amount of car, uh, carbonic maceration, uh, and and you know, I mean you just kind of learn right. about like and it's, again it's about dissecting when you hear these like we go through a grid in the court of master sommeliers uh, of of components of the wine whether it's sight uh, smell um, and then you know initial conclusions and and things like and taste where you're kind of like confirming things and you every single piece that you take out of that has a process and has, so that's how you learn to dissect it. And, I, and the hardest part about doing that when right. you see someone um, going through the grid is not making a conclusion before you go through all these different uh, components of the wine. See, so, I'm terrible at that because I, I, I want to make the conclusion right away. So I'm like, ah, I nailed it. And then I I'm know. always wrong. Shout out to Drew Hendricks for uh, <laughs> calling me out on that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That is, so you're supposed to almost identify all the components and then draw a con- conclusion based on all of your notes. And uh, I'm just terrible at it. So I want to kind of back up. You said that the that 10 Minutes by Tractor was very a traditional. They wanted to, to really use Burgundy as their model. Uh, did that did that come into play? You mentioned whole cluster uh, fermentation for Pinot Noir. So that is when they actually ferment the skins and the stems instead of removing the stems uh, and just fermenting the skins. Is that what they did there? and Or did they do a little combo? They did a little bit of a combo, but it was very small percentage of whole cluster. Um, with the reds, typically they would come in and we would send them through the destemmer, which is a, I don't even want to think about that thing anymore. I cleaned it so many times, man. I like that thing's going to give me nightmares for the rest of my life. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so they did, they would destem that they, what they really concentrated on with the reds is really keeping those berries whole and keeping them fresh. So you want a little bit of, uh, of carbonic style, uh, with, with the, 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 but you don't want it. You don't want too much of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so was that just with Pinot Noir? Typically, folks do not include the stems with, with the Shiraz and, and, and a lot of other grape varieties. Yeah, I think, I think that's, like a, that's a big kind of debate right now, correct? Right, like, yeah. depending on where you are in the world, I think Syrah is like the big kind of uh, divider between whole cluster and not whole cluster. So. Yeah, but they didn't do any, 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 any Syrah there. Uh, no, we didn't, do, we didn't do. I saw some being done in our, in our facilities. But uh, we did Pinot Noir, and that was very, very, very small percentage of whole cluster. Yeah. Maybe like one, you know, one bin or something like that. It wasn't any any significant amount where it would cause yeah. a difference. So. What were people were people talking about um, concrete and uh, wood and stainless steel? The all of these materials to ferment in was that kind of a hot topic of what people were talking about? Well, I mean, you know, so concrete is is for for me like kind of monitoring the process of fermentation you kind of realize which ones are just keep it like the fermentation more consistent you don't want to have any problems during fermentation that's where because then you that's when you have to start adding or subtracting or you know mixing stuff where you're not getting the um you're not getting the personality of the wine right uh so uh yeah i mean the concrete vessels were the best by far for consistency they just yeah they never had issues you never had problems with fermentation uh but they are extremely extremely expensive right and and they take up a lot of space as well and hard to clean did it was are they a little bit harder to clean or could you run none of them are easy to clean i think and and when you're doing punch downs you really have to be careful about scraping the sides of those concretes right Uh, you don't want to get any of that in the wine you don't want that to to lose anything um and then we had stainless steel ones as well i mean Again, you're talking about a matter of space and a matter of, you know, money as well. I mean, we had, uh, what, 12 
concrete fermenters, nine or 12 uh, concrete fermenters going at once and constantly having, we would fill those up first. You know, those things were, especially for the uh, single vineyard wines, which you really want to have high quality. So you don't want any problems to go on with that. You really want to really tell the pl- uh, a sense of place and time on those. But we had stainless steel fermenters as well that were a little bit less consistent. Um, and then we had, <clears throat> and they were really hard to, to do pump overs on a lot of the time if you had like a small opening on top uh, that you hear about you know this is the funny thing you'd hear about guys doing pump overs or push downs and falling in fermenters every year and people dying that way things like that uh, it's, it's right it's you 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 essentially um drown you asphyxiate in because there's all carbon dioxide just yeah. full carbon dioxide yeah i mean i remember my my well i mean you know it was the thing about my experience was, you know, it was a massive vintage. We did 240 tons of fruit in about three weeks. So that was massive. And there was four of us to do that. So a lot of the time, these winemakers, these experienced winemakers would say, well, here's, here's this, you know, $250,000 piece of equipment. This is how you use it. Go ahead. Right. I was like, well, you guys are making a huge mistake. Man. I don't know what you guys are thinking. Uh, but you know, I like, you know, for instance, I would, you know, use that pump and go up to a, a giant stainless steel tank that had a small opening on top and to make sure I was wetting down all the cap, I would have to stick my head in that thing. Yeah. And the first time I got a big whip whiff of carbon dioxide, I almost passed out. Wow. I was like, man, it hits you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. You, you definitely, you definitely realize that moment because you've heard all the stories and then you, you, you smell that. And, and you're you like, know to be careful, but oh, you yeah. push it, right? You're yeah. like, ah. I mean, you want to make sure you get everything, you know, especially as someone, you know, you don't want to be the guy that this guy came from the States and he just messed everything up for our vintage, man. He did. He just didn't know what he was doing. You know, I want to, I want to be sure that I was doing it right. So yeah. Yeah. Got to represent. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, let's take a, one last short break here. Another announcement. Um, and uh, and and keep up with uh, with our interview with Tony Schlotzauer, who is a sommelier here in Austin, uh, coming from Jeffries and now transitioning to uh, Republic National. And um, and this is another bottle down. My name is Mark Rayshap. Uh, I thank you so much for listening. And uh, uh, before we get into our um, our next spot. Let's see. Let, we're, we're gonna hear a little bit of music and uh, play with some of the technology here, and uh, and we'll be right back after these messages. And we're back live here in the studios of Co-op Radio, 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. My name is Mark Rayshap, and this is Another Bottle Down. We're hearing all about the harvest festivities down in Australia, in uh, outside of Melbourne, in the Mornington Peninsula, with Tony Schlotzauer, who has just gotten back from working vintage there, and hearing uh, such incredible stories, and, uh, and getting a little bit of the back uh, images of the winery, and, and kind of the nitty-gritty of making wine. Uh, Tony did... Um, I think that we kind of painted the, the, the picture of, of vintage pretty well. Do you want to tell us um, a little bit of, about your background and, and some of the other notable experiences that you've had along the way in your, in your career as a sommelier? Sure. I mean, I can kind of step back a little bit further. And um, I, I started in the restaurant business at like 13 years old. I, uh, <clears throat> being Greek, have Greek heritage, uh, I, you know, I, working in a, in a restaurant is kind of a rite of passage as well. It's just kind of like you're handed a, a tray as a, as a, as a eight year old and said, here, take some drinks out. Um, so, uh, I, I worked in a Greek restaurant, uh, shout out to Nikolai Florea. We used to do a Greek dance show, uh, at, uh, at this Greek restaurant, uh, every Thursday through Sunday. It was such a blast. I learned a lot about the restaurant business that way. Um, and, uh, John Janakakos, the owner, that guy was awesome. Cafe Placa in Fountain Valley. Uh, and then, uh, then after that, I went to, uh, a clubhouse restaurant. Um, and then I left actually for a few years and I became a firefighter. I was in the fire industry for, uh, almost seven years, uh, ended up doing some time with Manhattan beach fire and LA County for a short time. Uh, and then in 2009, I left the fire service 
and uh, went back into the restaurant industry. Was that, uh, you know, I almost think of the intensity of being a firefighter uh, has to be such an incredible way. You, you have to work under pressure and, uh, and be able to kind of react. Do you think that that helped you um, doing, working on the floor as a sommelier? Uh, yeah, you definitely, I mean, it, one thing it does do, it puts everything in perspective. Yeah. Right. Uh, cause you know, I mean, and, and I think that's the way you have to look at it. Being a sommelier and being, you know, almost 27 years on the floors of restaurants, uh, you kind of have to like put everything in perspective. Don't get too stressed about anything. Cause everybody sees that, uh, you're just working with food. You're just serving food. You're just serving wine, which is an amazing product, but uh, you're not dealing with life and death every day. So you need to have a good time with it. I think people love that. Um, I learned something from a lady named Robbie Joe, uh, who I worked with at Mastro's Steakhouse in Costa Mesa. And she told me, you're hosting a party at every table. And that kind of is, is the best way to look at it. And I've kind of passed that along to people. Uh, so um, that's that's how I look at things now. I, so I went after I was in the fire service, I came back and worked at Mastro's for about seven years. And this was in L.A.? This was in, yeah, in Orange County. Uh, Costa Mesa. So there's a few of those now. Those are kind of uh, popping up everywhere with the Landry's group. Uh, but uh, yeah, I did that for about seven years at, uh, at Mastro's, which is a great experience. Really, you know, learned my chops serving. Yeah. Um, and that's where I started my psalm career. I really started appreciating wine there uh, because I'd sold wine before that. But I think Mastro's really kind of made me realize how much it means to uh, the culinary experience, the wine part of it. So yeah, when when you were doing this this in a very impressive trajectory of these these beautiful restaurants, uh, how how much did it mean to be serving uh, the wine alongside the food? Too, you know, we always think of wine and food just together. But uh, was that a fun thing for you to to get what folks were ordering and trying to find this wine that would be the perfect match with all of them? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, a lot of the time, the only thing about, you know, working in California is a little bit different than Texas in the sense that, uh, you know, people tend to go after what they recognize. We have, you know, one country, obviously, in California that's world renowned, uh, but it's, right. it's, it's definitely different from the old world. And like I said, um, <clears throat> so, you know, getting your chops, I definitely uh, like kind of advanced myself in my career. Uh, when I got to this space here and working with master sommeliers here, you, who you have an amazing uh, access to here in Austin right. with these amazing sommeliers that have done so much in this community, uh, June Rodil, Devin, Craig, uh, David Keck, Jason Huerta, Paul Osborne, Mark Sayer, you know, James right. Watkins, all these guys have just done so much for this community. Yeah. And uh, it really it really allows us to, uh, to have freedom as sommeliers, so... Yeah, do you, do you think is it a tighter community than LA or some of the other places that you've seen, uh, just in terms of camaraderie? Uh, you know, I always like to to think that that's the case. I, I definitely think so, um, and and not, I'm not trying to badmouth anybody. Uh, I, I learned a lot in California, and I you know I mean, but being here, the the focus on the world of wine just was a different a different level. Mm. Uh, and just having access to these people, like these, these master sommeliers and like learning the world of wine, having, you know, cause at Jeffrey's the beautiful thing. And with McGuire Mormon hospitality, uh, which is obviously an amazing group, you have access to these master Psalms and you're doing education every week. Yeah. Uh, so, and with these big companies, like a lot of the time you just, you don't, they don't, it's hard. It's, it's hard it's a, to, it's a lot harder. to have it's access harder. to, to the, the decision makers too. And, and to, to get that, uh, that transfer of information, the communication of this is the reason that we're carrying this wine on this menu. Uh, that's always a challenge. It's, it's, it's a lot of, about market, right. what, what moves in that market? You know, they have to, they have to you know as much as they want to put these weird old carbonic, natural, organic, you know, right. <laughs> biodynamic wines on the list. Are they going to sell? Yeah. Uh, here in Texas, I've had the experience at Jeffrey's, especially people asking me what I should drink. Right. And that just allows me so much more freedom, and, and it makes me want to learn more. Yeah. I want to. I want to. I want to be able to like sell what June put on the list. These exciting things that June and Jason were to have put on the list. Right. So it's it's it really it really expands my breadth of knowledge. All right, we've got time for one one more question here. Uh, just about a minute. Uh, what are the 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 regions that you're kind of most excited or or that you're wanting to study the most uh, here on out? Oh man, uh, so many. 
Uh, you know, I, I, I would love to do more with Texas wine. That'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, we got this beautiful hill country here and things like that. But, you know, I, I love, I love Spanish wines. I love the Canary Islands, some cool stuff mm. they're doing out there. Uh, you got some, some beautiful wines all over Spain. That's my next big trip is Spain and Portugal, probably I love right. Portuguese wine, stuff like oh, that. Yeah. And yeah. Italy would be great too. Well, I'm about to post as a whole, um, as a whole kind of chapter, uh, a lot of interviews that I did in Portugal. So stay tuned for that. Tony Schlotzauer, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you in the sommelier community here in Austin. And thank you for being on co-op radio. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.